0: everyone. I'm Yumi Kendall.
1: And I'm Joseph Conyers.
0: And welcome to Tacit No More, a podcast where we are no longer silent, asking the questions that need to be asked and saying the things that need to be said about classical music.
1: Tacit No More is an optimist's playground and landing pad for positive discussions about our belief in the power of music to better humanity. And we will invite voices from all sectors to inspire us in the work we do on and off the stage.
0: Joe and I have been friends for nearly 25 years and have over 40 years between us as professional musicians. We've had the best of conversations. Would you join us? Hi, Joe.
1: Great to see you. It's good to see you too. (laughs) Yes, it's a beautiful day today.
0: Gorgeous. It's
1: It's really, really nice. It's like my favorite type of weather. Um, the sun is
0: very happy. <laughs> it's just right. And a gentle breeze.
1: Yes, yes. I feel
0: like it's poetry. Like, today is a poem day. Like, there's mm. poems written about today.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think there are lots yes. of poems <laughs> written about today. Um, yeah.
0: Well, actually, I'm really looking forward to connecting with Vijay. Vijay? Yeah.
1: Vijay VJ Gupta? Is that the who you are be talking about? The
0: one and only, yes, the great speaker violinist, Creator, um, you add to it, I mean, <laughs> everything. Like,
1: child genius, actual genius, <laughs> MacArthur <laughs> genius, like, all
0: those things. Absolutely.
1: But also one of the most genuine, beautiful, musical human souls that exist, uh, yes. that I feel like I've run into and had the pleasure of working with. Um, it's it's being able to watch his career. I, I Actually, I remember exactly the first time we met because he gave the keynote of the opening... Of the League of American Orchestras conference, I cannot tell you the year, but it was in Chicago, and it was a really neat experience because I'd heard so much about the great Vijay Gupta. And there's a line, of course, a receiving line, probably about the length of the entire the Chicago. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's so funny. Once I got in the room and I was like near him, he finished up and he looked at me and he goes. I've been waiting so long to meet you. Oh, <laughs> it oh, was a really, I was like, that's what I was about to say to you. Oh. Uh, and uh, of course, that sparked a really fantastic friendship. Um, uh, musician, uh, comrade, it's just, he, he's just really uh, a beautiful person, beautiful soul. And I'm just so excited to introduce him to our audiences.
0: Ab- absolutely. His reputation precedes him. It's been such a pleasure getting to know him over the years. I remember I first heard him speak here in Philadelphia at Jefferson, um, and he brings his experiences, his connections, his creativity, his soul to life, and he shares so openly, and we're just so lucky to get to reconnect with him. Yes, Looking forward to it.
1: All right, well, let's welcome Vijay Gupta to the show. Hey.
0: Hi.
1: (laughs) Vijay Gupta. Hey.
2: Hi, you guys. I'm so happy to see you.
1: It's <laughs> wonderful to see you, VJ. Always. Always a ray of sunshine and happiness and good feelings and all the good
2: things. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Um, one of the things that we're doing as part of this podcast to center us at the beginning and our conversations with our guests is um, we want to invite you to join us in an exercise we call One Good Thing. And this is an activity to bring connection and openness and it orients us to the positive, which are all values that are important to us. Um, And it's kind of like shining a flashlight in a dark room and what we pay attention to becomes what we experience. Um, So we want to ask ourselves and invite you and our listeners, if you want to share with us, um, what is something meaningful? What is something you're grateful for recently? So I'll go ahead and start and then I'll ask Joe to share something, and then um, Vijay, if you're willing to share something, that would be great too. Okay, so my recent, very, very recent one good thing was uh, on my way here, My it starts as one bad thing, but it becomes <laughs> one good thing. My car battery, my car didn't start. So thank goodness I have AAA, and they showed up in like 35 minutes. And they did the test and they'd ran the, they ran everything and I just needed a new battery. And everything was fine. It was six years old, everything was fine. Every... Thank goodness for AAA, <laughs> here we are. So I got here and the reason on these, these fabulous um, headphones is I, there's a red one and a black one and it reminded me completely of the red to red <laughs> and black to black when you're jumping a car because someone tried that and it didn't work and anyway. So here we are, I'm grateful for AAA.
1: Well, we're all grateful that Yumi was able to make it today. That's awesome. We just played a whole lot of music today at work. Uh, We did a recording of excerpts uh, to advertise pieces for uh, the upcoming season. And this is really simple, but to go through so much repertoire in a very short amount of time... I was just thankful to be a musician because it's all such great music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just really made me appreciate the moment and uh, the time and the sound of my colleagues and just being part of that. And so it, it could have been a long day. And in a lot of ways, it was a long day, but it was also very refreshing because it's a reminder that we get to make great music all the time, It's is great. It's like yeah.
0: photographs brief moments of in the expanse of the repertoire.
2: (laughs) Completely. Oh wow, like what a what a gift to be a musician, but what a gift to be reminded of like that feeling and like that range of being able to like dip into some expression for a little bit of time and like try it on and like live in it. And then you realize that like you're being lived through it, you know, and like (laughs) all these memories come up because you're playing that music. I don't know. I, I kind of have a car battery related thing too. It wasn't my actual car battery. It was my, car remote key fob battery, which has been dead for weeks. Um, and just sort of like, so I, first of all, I've been very grateful for my wife's car and my ability to steal my wife's car when I need to. Um, but I, I was also very grateful for CVS and being able to like quickly put in a new, uh, new battery into my key fob and have my car actually start again. Um, but, um, Gosh, I'm, I'm so grateful to see both of you. That is really something that's bringing me a lot of joy right now. Um, and to be having this conversation with you both. Um, but musically and physically, um, I, I want to sort of say two, two things I'm grateful for. Um, I recently came back from... Um, Kind of a tour on the on the East Coast. I was in, a, in in the town of Worcester right outside Boston and I was doing a lot of playing there. and um, the programs that I programmed and put myself through were kind of culminating ideas that took years to germinate and develop. and I'm so grateful for my body. Like one thing I've been so inspired by you know especially by by you Joe, is is your your physical, practice, you know, of, of being in the gym and working out. And I think it took me such a long time to realize that my instrument was my body. It wasn't my violin. And, and I wish, and I, I know we're going to get into this conversation in a little bit, but I wish that I had been taught earlier how to practice through my body instead of practicing through my brain only in this cerebral kind of stuck state. Because halfway through like the C major fugue that I'm playing, I'm like, Oh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> like I'm, physi- I'm physically exhausted, but it's taking every ounce of physical endurance to get through this program. And I, I actually work out and I train with a, with a dancer and I've been so grateful to, you know, learn, core strength and balance and body awareness and all the proprioception pieces where like we can get so zoned in to these micrometer millimeter, you know, tiny, tiny spaces. Um, and yet what we're trying to accomplish is so, so transcendent and huge and explosive. Um, that, uh, I don't know. There's something in there. Another metaphor for batteries, which I I don't have the bandwidth (laughs) to do right now, but there's, there's something in there. Um, but I'll, I'll just tack on one more thing which is that I recently you know, I came back from, from the East Coast and my amazing violin maker, I, I play on a violin made in 2010 by an LA based violin maker named Eric Benning and a couple of months ago we found a violin made in Germany by an ancestor of his in the early 1700s and I've been working with Eric on making that violin back into a Baroque violin and he recently put on a new fingerboard on that violin and the fingerboard is made of like compressed maple which is like way more eco conscious and eco sustainable than Mm -hmm. than ebony um and it's absolutely gorgeous. And for whatever reason, the music that I started playing on it was like that Bach A minor concerto from like Book Three Suzuki. <laughs> yes. Um, and I I almost started crying when I was playing because I'm like, how is it that this music moves us so deeply? And is it just because it's so embedded in our memory so deeply, um, or is it that we've always been aiming for that sound? Like we were like like the sound that we aim for. That we try to discover and uncover in us is, um, is like looking in a mirror. I've really been thinking about this metaphor of like how our ears are mirrors. You know, we're constantly looking for our own reflection when we play. Um, so I'll pause there. There's a lot to be grateful for, um, <laughs> but it's something about something about batteries and recharging, and um, yeah, being able to see your own reflection in what you create.
1: That's amazing.
2: BJ. Beautiful. <laughs> I love it.
1: We, I, yeah, I feel like we we could actually just keep going with there with the yeah. conversation. And <laughs> well,
0: this is so much a part of the space that we we want to create is that open space of gratitude and reminding ourselves why we do what we do, and actually that why the why like being grateful for this also like the reflection of what we create. Um, so much of that is also what we. Joe and I want to create with this conversation platform, um, and kind of reminding ourselves the why we do what we do. And you've touched on that so beautifully in your, your many good things (laughs) and maybe would you be willing to share with us sort of your, your origin story or your, your why of your current work? And where you are mm-hmm. right now in this glimpse of time? You mentioned you were performing um, in Massachusetts and have so many creative projects. You've also got Street Symphony in LA, which was a long time creation of yours. And we would just love to hear what your your own story is.
2: Yeah. Well, you know th- this this question. You know, start with why I think about like the writing of Simon Sinek and, you know, the the kind of great leaders of our, of our time, you know, right? Like to identify purpose. Um, and I think what's beautiful about starting with why is that once why can change, right. And, and once why can morph and shift over time, um, I would say my my most recent why, um, starting from the most recent and going backwards, I've really been interested in creating experiences of transformation through music, but also through presence, like how I show up as a nonprofit leader, how I show up as someone who's curating and directing projects and programs, as someone who also shows up as a violinist. I'm realizing that, we can often stop at what we consider accuracy or some kind of perfection. Um, but I also think about like what the chef Thomas Keller says, you know, if, it's per- if you've reached perfect, it's not perfect anymore, you know, and, and perfect is boring. And, and so what are, what are we really after, you know? Like what's my job as a violinist? Is it to play the notes? I'm not so sure. I wonder if it's to create a vessel almost to, like, create a uh, create a create ship, you know, and it's a little container, and to invite everyone in the room, regardless of who they are in the room. I, I just got to play at the gorgeous, gorgeous Mechanics Hall in Worcester, which is mm-hmm. one of the most beautiful acoustics in America, and... You know, the program that we did there was music by Bach and Rina Esmail accompanied by an Indian classical dancer narrated by a formerly incarcerated poet. And we live streamed the entire program into the Worcester County Jail and interwove songs created by currently incarcerated men living in the jail with the Bach. And so, you know, Mechanics Hall becomes this vessel. It's not an arrival point. It's a conveyance. Where are we going with this, right? And so I think perhaps like the why is to also reflect the why back to the audience. Why are you here? What are you looking for when you're here? And how do we co-create that, right? How do we create that together? So you're not coming to a concert to consume something. I mean, sure, you're being fed something, your soul is being nourished, but you're also coming here to make a decision about where you want to go from here, right? And I think I ask the very same question when I'm in spaces uh, here in Los Angeles that are part of my organization Street Symphony. And so often those spaces are clinics and shelters, county jails and prisons. And again, there is this sort of accuracy around why one should go there, right? We can. We can, the conversation can stop around accessibility it can stop at diversity it can stop at what a nice thing you do and what's 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 honest is that those are none of the motivations those are none of the motivations behind why i'm doing this work it's really to create something beautiful which nourishes which subverts and challenges um but also leaves us feeling like oh I am full in a way I wasn't expecting to be full. I got yeah. something that I wasn't expecting to get today. Now, now what do I do with this? Yeah, um, That that really illuminates me. Um, I will say that that why has taken several years, probably around a decade to develop. Um, With regards to where I was about 10 years ago, I was starting Street Symphony. Um, At the time, it was just myself and a handful of my colleagues in the LA Philharmonic. And we were kind of continuing in the tradition of the typical outreach concert, which a friend Mm -hmm. of mine once lovingly called Drive-By Beethoven. You know, it's this kind of thing where... like. (laughs) we show up we we play beethoven for a bunch of black and brown people we kind of spout some knowledge at them and then we expect them to be to be better at the end of it and <laughs> one of the first experiences one of the first experiences um, that i ever had playing in a clinic in skid row we were halfway through the first movement of like the opus 18 number 4 c minor beethoven you know super dramatic sturm und drang and just like <gasps> unbelievable and and there i was Playing first and I was like like probably three or four feet away from a woman sitting in the front row of the Skid Row Clinic, and halfway through the first movement, she like put her hand in the air, and her hand was like six inches from my face. And she had she had a question. She wanted to ask a question, and like it was this kind of like shock. Um, because I had never been that close to an audience member, and all of my co- all of my colleagues all kind of like recoiled. And then when we stopped the movement, she just stood up and she started speaking, and she just started going, and she's like, "What is this music? Because this music is my music. What was going on? Like, what was happening in this composer's life? Because all of that, all of that is me. That's my story." And I'm looking over at, like, the social workers, like, God, please help! What's going on? And all the social workers are, like, almost close to tears. Like, they're just looking at each other. And they told me afterwards that they had never heard her speak before. Like, they had they had been trying for months and months and months. And she was like a brick wall. And this was the thing that just helped her move, move on. And then there are people in the room applauding her story. So immediately the why completely changed. And it was the community who changed it for us. Uh, you know, The musicians in that room did not have the creativity to think about the purpose of why we were there. The community claimed the purpose. Mm. And so this is where I, I come back to this kind of co-creative piece because the question of purpose is something that I constantly find myself asking, right? Like, Is the purpose through which we are preparing to play the best version? Well, I'm sorry, the best version is probably already on Spotify recorded by the Philadelphia (laughs) Orchestra, or whomever, right? You know, and and you can you can listen to it, you can listen to it in your own way, however you want to listen to it. It can be whatever music you want to listen to. You know, perfect is boring, right? But perfect also has its own place, and there's a utility behind perfection. Yet, when we think about how we want to play to encourage the most amount of connection, for me, that changes the way I play. It changes the way I speak. It changes the way that I encourage my colleagues. Like, I'm constantly trying to create an environment of softness and grace, as well as challenge. And Mm. to challenge um, any kind of like, oh, I think I've done enough here. Or, oh, I think I've played it the way that I play it, and we kind of have our calcified veneer of, ah, that's good enough. No, 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 no. How much further can we go? How much more can we give to this audience that is giving us so much? It's
1: so beautiful, Vijay. I mean, all your descriptions are uh, amazing. They're so vivid, and they're, they're so human. Uh, I mean, I, as, I, as you were talking, I was just thinking about how organic the experience is, how alive it, it is. Uh, for music, I love how you use the word vessel, uh, and that we we are transferring something that we can't name. But it, it's this transfer, both from the performer to the audience, but from the audience to the performer. And I think that's really really important. Something that we don't think about that often as performers. You've done such amazing work. You're such a gifted violinist and musician and human, Vijay won the prestigious <laughs> MacArthur um, uh, Grant, um, also known as the Genius Award, uh, for, for those who aren't familiar with the MacArthur part. And this is while you were a member of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And I'm curious, you bring so, you t- the way you talk about music is the way to me, like music should be, it is, this, this connect- connectivity with our audience, this connectivity with with the community, the connectivity with each other. So many different wonderful things. So can you talk to us to your comfort level about this process? Because the audience may have realized, I said was a member (laughs) of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Can you talk to us about that transition um, from being a member of an orchestra to doing the work that you do now? And just that process, Mm. I find that
2: so interesting. Well, well, thank you for the question and for your very kind words. I mean, it's, you know, it, when we talk, when we think about like the the why as well, you know, I, I auditioned for the L.A. Phil in 2007. I was at the time 19. I had never really taken an orchestral edition before. Um, but I had been very lucky to study with an amazing concertmaster violinist named Glenn Dickterow, who was kind of like a, a surrogate parent to me. And um, during my lessons when I was a teenager, uh, he would just put excerpts in front of me. He's like, here's Don Juan, play it. Here's <laughs> Heldenleben, play it. Um, and I was in love with him and his sound and who he was as a person. Um, But the motivation behind auditioning for the orchestra in truth was uh, kind of to escape my parents' uh, expectations of me to become a a doctor. Um, Mm. I was kind of fleeing them. And I thought, um, okay, I I need to try, I need to give myself at least one shot at a life as a musician. And the one shot I had, was to audition for the LA film. And mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, when, when I won the job, my, my my parents saw what the salary was, they were like, okay, I guess that's okay. I guess that's fine, you can <laughs> you can go do that. Um, but um, I think, to, to be perfectly honest, I think I knew pretty early on, after a couple of years, that something didn't feel right to me. Um, f- you know, for me living in Los Angeles, I was really overcome by um, witnessing a neighborhood, a community called Skid Row, which is the epicenter of the crisis of homelessness in America today. On any given night, upward of 5,000 individuals sleep on the street in downtown Los Angeles in walking distance of Walt Disney Concert Hall. And something about being on stage and making this music that I absolutely loved Brahms symphonies and and Strauss and all the music, all the music that we love that I had dreamed about playing that I would like stand in my dorm room and conduct, you know, just waiting for this music (laughs) to like become real. You know, I put on the Carlos Kleiber recording of Brahms 4 and just like move my body for 40 minutes because it was just the most glorious thing ever. Um, But, you know, uh, on one hand, I, I didn't understand the cognitive dissonance between being on stage at Walt Disney Concert Hall, being on stage at the Hollywood Bowl, playing for these audiences for whom it seemed we could do absolutely no wrong, Um, going on tour in swanky, amazing places, being on the road, and then coming back home to LA and kind of getting the sense of like, oh, those people are not our people. Those people who push Mm -hmm. a shopping cart, those people who who live in the tents, um, there's something wrong with them. That's their fault. And another motivating why for me in my life was that I I grew up in a very devout Hindu household. And um, part of the way I was raised was that um, every being is divine. Um, There is God in every person and that the ultimate form of worship is service. It's not praying or chanting in front of an altar. It's showing up in whatever way you can for another human being. And there was a point when I was on stage and I was was entering the LA Phil where I genuinely thought, God, like the world doesn't need another orchestral musician who sits on stage. Um, if there was ever a, a benefit for someone to be a, 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 a doctor like Paul Farmer or someone who could actually be out in the field doing public health works, um, yeah. I felt like that's where I should have been. And I felt tremendously shameful and guilty. Um, and perhaps at the time that was a naive feeling and I felt somehow bad for doing something that I liked and loved. And yet, you know, I talked about Brahms 4. I'll never forget the first time I played Brahms 4 at the Hollywood Bowl. Um, And it was like my first summer at the Bowl. I was 19. I was sitting like 5th stand outside so as far away from the conductor as one can possibly get and when i played in london philharmonia for a couple of weeks that my colleagues in london they call that suicide corner because it's like (laughs) the last chair in the end and it's like it's like that that gallows humor that only like british orchestral musicians have you know it's like yeah (laughs) right and that's and that's what it would that's what it would feel like just this like you're out in this own island by yourself and you know, I I loved working with Leonard Slatkin and I will not forget that day because we got to the fourth movement and Leonard Slatkin ends the rehearsal and he says, Oh, you all know it. You know how it goes. And I had never played it before. I'd only listened to that Carlos Kleiber recording. And my stand partner, who was kind of like slightly hazing me at the time, he, uh, he kind of shouted to Slatkin and he said, uh, The new guy doesn't know it. And Slatkin looked me right in the eye and he said hold on, good luck, you know, like you'll, you'll, you'll get through it, you know, see see you at the end, you know, and then like when he walked, when he walked past me after the concert, he kind of looked at me and was like, like like a heads up, like, hey, how'd it go? How'd it go for you? You know, and at the Hollywood Bowl, like you're on a Megatron, you know, like there's a, 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 a camera that zooms in on you. So I'm just there sweating bullets. And that, that wasn't fun. That wasn't soul fulfilling. That that wasn't music, that was entertainment. That was something where I felt really, um, I felt cheapened by that. I felt like there was something happening in that experience for myself personally, where, gosh, I, I wish I could have spent a lifetime studying that piece of music and being in it and being with colleagues that were as nerding out about that music and playing it about the Pasagalga bass line and the retrovertible counterpoint. And I wanted people <laughs> who I could talk to about that. And um, you know, and and I and, you know, I on one hand, this is why I'm so grateful to be friends with you guys. Um, but on the other hand, there were colleagues in the LA Phil who pulled me aside at 19 and 20 and said, hey, you know what? We're going to read all the Beethoven quartets. We're going to start from the beginning. We're going to go all the way to the end. We're going to do one at a time. Doesn't matter that you're 19. We're going to open some nice bottles of wine and we're all going to become friends and we're all going to play this music together. And what I realized is that's that's how I learned how to fall in love with music, you know, with mm-hmm. with my colleagues. And it was through those relationships. Um, so to return to your question, Joe, I, I think I knew within a couple of years that there was a tension between my role in the L.A. Phil as a section violinist and between what was starting to become this burgeoning interaction with the community through chamber music and through the conversational, relational nature of chamber music, the relationships I had with my colleagues were now being reflected in the relationships I was building with the Skid Row community. And the moment that those relationships became more real street symphony musicians started to see musicians in our audiences in Skid Row as people who had their own stories and their own artistry to offer to the conversation. So we started programming less and less music and we started holding more space for the community to come in and make their own music. And eventually we had incubated a community choir. We had incubated a community drumming ensemble. We had reached out to jazz and reggae and mariachi musicians, musicians whose cultures I did not know at all. And yet I felt so sad for not knowing that these musical traditions were based in community dialogue and, um, and also in that kind of exchange piece. So, um, you know, by the time that, uh, 2018 rolled around, which was my last year in the LA Philharmonic, I had been burned out for several years. Um, and I think it, it took me some time to realize that, that I would be backstage, um, finishing up grants to the nea and the california arts council while wearing my tails um like until the very last moment um and then i would walk out on stage and play and then play and play Mahler night yeah and that's 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 my question for you joe is like you know this feeling too you know and and you know it's those of us who are involved in citizen artistry i think there's this kind of pernicious hierarchy that gets talked about with regards to if we are community-minded or we have skills or interests in other arenas, I have perceived that somehow it is uh, assumed that we do not take our music-making as seriously. And I think that's absolute bullshit. I really want to challenge that because um, I actually think it makes me a better musician to know how nonprofits run it makes me a better musician to know how fundraising works it makes me a better musician to understand the pitfalls of DEI and when they become box checking devices to raise grant dollars and actually not real community-based exchange and honest programs so I'm going to pause there but I'm just so curious to know for you Joe and Yumi like how do you navigate this sort of like perceived pernicious hierarchy behind like the work that you so care about doing, and also your integrity as artists and performers at a super high level?
1: Well, before we even get there, Vijay, because I I guess we have the luxury to say that this is our show. So we're (laughs) going to throw this question back to you because the thing that gets me, how on earth, given the testimony that you just, gave us, and to all our listeners who were fortunate to hear it, how on earth could the
2: institution let you go? Hmm. I will say that um, at the time, the CEO of the LA Phil was Simon Woods, uh, who is now the president of the uh, League of American Orchestras. And Simon really went to bat for me. We really tried to find Mm -hmm. a way um, for me possibly to go to part-time. You know, when I was working in Philharmonia Orchestra in in London for a time, um, not every player had to be... A full-time player. Um, you could go down to being a half-time player. And, um, you know, mm. there. I, I, I wonder how much the collective bargaining agreement got in our way. I also wonder how much, um, you know, the, the protocols of the union got in our way. Um, but, you know, I also am so aware of the strictures of an institution. You know, it, it, I, I wonder if we are kind of, we're entering a place where we need to reframe how we define what classical music is. And that symphonic music and conservatory based musics are essentially institutional music as opposed to a classical music. You know, we're even at a point now where 1950s, 1960s jazz is becoming classical in terms of the way that it is studied and the way that it is canonicized, right? There's an, again, this assumption that one must behave according to the canon. And I think that creating creating structures of flexibility first need to happen by creating structures of trust. And I wonder, I wonder if we have simply not done the work in the American orchestral system to truly create those collaborative, decentralized systems of trust and flexibility, and one thing that I do notice when I speak for companies like Accenture or the Fortune 50 companies to share the work of Street Symphony is there's a lot of interest in collaborative leadership at the very highest echelons of business practice. There's a lot of interest in creating flexible laboratories and structures where failure is embraced and celebrated, Um, and experimentation which leads to creativity then gets looped into how we think about best practices. Of course, there's the dark side to corporations as well. But when I speak for, you know, quote unquote, creative enterprises, when I speak for education conferences or when I speak to orchestra leagues, they want to know about business practices, they want to know about uh, the sort of like nitty gritty, how do we appear like we're doing a social justice side of things, as opposed to how do we make this the most creative environment that we can. So I wonder how much of it is this question of creating better systems, you know, how do we create something that is more flexible and adaptive. And for me, I also do wonder if I needed that clean separation from the LA Phil to create my own structure, you know, through through Street Symphony um, and it's, I will say, it is a joy beyond imagination that I can go back to my LA Philharmonic colleagues and my colleagues in the Master Chorale and say hey, <laughs> come, come play the Dvorak bass quintet in a, a shelter in Skid Row and just last month we had this beautiful group of, of five of my colleagues from the Phil, a couple of whom I hadn't seen since the pandemic and 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 since I left the orchestra, who all carted their instruments down to the women's shelter on Skid Row and they played so beautifully. And I should also mention that everyone who plays Street Symphony is paid an honorarium of $250 per concert and a rehearsal fee of $75. And I want that fee to go up, but the reason why I'm very transparent about those numbers is that, you know, this is not a favor. This is a professional engagement. I expect my colleagues to rehearse and show up with the same integrity that they show up for a concert at Disney Hall. Uh, which is kind of why they also get paid the same right now, you know? and that's that that's that's something I'm very proud of. Um, and I want the art to lead and the in the quality and integrity of the art to lead that conversation. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ahead of your question. I mean, the other the other part of the truth is that, like there were times where I felt very unseen in the orchestra. that was that was very true. there, there were there were colleagues and people in management who said, um, you know, uh, quote, those people don't understand the music that you're playing. You know, you, you might as well use high school students, you might as well use other, other musicians um, because they, they just don't understand what, what's going on here. And perhaps that was true, but that was not a failing on behalf of the community. That was our failing. That was our failing, right? That was a failing of how we contextualize and talk about and think about our music, assuming that just because we play in tune an audience will give a shit. That's not true, right? We have so much more work to do to create a sense of context and conveyance and meaning for ourselves and for our audiences. And I think we have lost touch of that.
0: This is just so, (laughs) so heartwarming to hear all of this, everything from, of course, your personal experience and observations and interactions and to the struggles of institutions and building trust and how we can cultivate. And that's part of my one of my fascinations in creating healthier institutions and thinking about the whole industry is what what do we need so that there is more trust within the institutions so that we can then well, first of all, keep VJs within institutions and also blurring these lines, institutionally speaking, so that we are able to have the kind of flexibility that you're talking about so that the creative self has room to give. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't also be able to do that on our own formal state. Like, it's it's about the live experience and... Um, Not the live concert experience, it's about the, like you said, as an audience member or as a community, as somebody who's involved in this live experience, not with a musical instrument in my hand, what am I, how is this going to change me? And as a participant in the creation of the music, like a cellist for me, like what, how is this going to change me? Like kind of the, the transformations that you're speaking about, like we want to create spaces of transformation, which is how I think of you and your work. That's like the essence of you, Vijay, is like you create places of opportunity yep. for change. And that internal, that can be internal change, that can be experience, like change because we're living it with the other people around us. It's because you as a performer have realized that you opened up this traumatized woman's emotional floodgates that she otherwise had completely closed off with the Beethoven um, 18.4, I mean, all of these are just such real examples of what we can do at the individual level, but also, I'm hoping, and that's part of what our we're trying to yeah. figure out, is also collectively. How can we all find and create our own purpose and create the spaces for our own version of what you are doing?
1: Because PJ. ultimately, I mean, the reason I ask the questions is because I think we need more VJs, <laughs> we, yeah, don't need yeah. less, uh, we don't need less VJs, and we, we do need the space so that the work that a VJ does, sorry, your name keeps coming up, but <laughs> that's how it goes, but the work that a VJ does is not only recognized, but celebrated as integral to the health of the, of the institution. And I mean, to your to your point, the work that we do, um, uh, doing this work, playing concerts, it's it's in in different spaces and having these different experiences actually enhances your artistry, your humanity, and your I mean, your musicianship I should have changed the order, but you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, and so. I mean, I guess, Vijay, we could talk to you for a very long time. <laughs> but there, there's a limit. There's a, there's a limit to what, <laughs> what we can do, at least right now. But I would like to ask, given this um, premise, what, what does Vijay Gupta, and I'm gonna make this, make this totally on you, what does Vijay Gupta tell a young musician today who's looking at our field and looking at the wonderful opportunities of performance at the highest level around the world, but also they might have this inner desire that there's something more that they want to um, uh, uh, bring to the world and have in the community. How do they marry marry those two things, and how do they enter into the space that we currently call—I say currently called because well, whatever—but we currently call classical music. This classical music space, this this. What, what, do you, what advice do you tell a young person
2: um, coming up? Do not let anyone limit your curiosity. Do not let anyone limit what you are interested in. You know, we've, we've used this word uh, a lot. Wholeness and integral and integrity are all related to how we are combating this fragmented personal and institutional world that we live in. And part of the fragmentation is a silo of professionalism and expertise-ism. Um, which is to say that, you know, I think one of the worst pieces of advice is to say, oh, focus on one thing. You don't want to be a dilettante. I want to be a dilettante. I want to know everything about everything. I want to know... I want to know more about what I don't know um, and how to humble myself in the craft of what feels really, really difficult for me. And like right now for me, yeah, yes, I love practicing Bach and I'm always curious to go deeper and deeper into like, I want to learn all the cantatas. I want to learn, I want to learn all that stuff. Um, But I'm also curious about writing, and I'm curious about reading Dostoevsky, and I'm curious about reading, you know, the various different ways that we can create healthy organizations. I'm curious about physical and mental health. I'm curious about all these things. And by remaining open and curious and not closing those doors, I'm finding connecting points between all of those places that are resonating points, which do create that sense of conveyance, right? Um, My dad was a travel agent. And he spoke multiple languages. Um, he, you know, his his job was to get tickets at the last minute for Bengali families living in the Mid Hudson Valley to fly back to India at a moment's notice, um, especially when a loved one, like a grandparent, was was ill and possibly was was about to pass away. And my dad would beg, cajole, charm you know, lie, do whatever he needed to do to get the best rates on a ticket for a client to get back home. And um, a couple of years ago, uh, my dad passed away at, at at the beginning of 2017. And I was looking at my desk and my desk is covered in notebooks. And I realized that I have the same handwriting as my dad. And that essentially I learned his skill. I learned how to speak multiple languages. And I think that's one of the things that I'm... Uh, that, that has helped me the most. Like, I know how to talk social worker. I can go down the rabbit hole with the social worker and talk about metrics and qualitative, quantitative analysis, talk about social-emotional learning and performing arts standards, the things that they're looking for. I can talk to a grant maker. I can talk to a funder. It always scares me to talk to a funder, but I can do it. I can talk to a nonprofit executive. I can talk to, I can, I love strategic, but, you know, look, it's not that we have to be experts in all of these things the same way we're experts in our instrument. I think what I want to say to, instrumentalists, is the tools that you have learned of discipline and dedication that you apply towards your instrument can be applied to every single facet of your life. It's about showing up with the same openness and curiosity. Just because you play the violin well, or you play the bass well, or the cello well, doesn't mean that your expertise of what you care for and care about as a person ends here. In fact, I think it begins here, using the instrument as a conveyance of transmitting your values into the world. And I think that's the second part of what I would say, is get to know what your values are, what animates you. Because we will always be pigeonholed into someone else's value system. And by really being closely connected with how we practice our values in the world, I think we begin then to understand what some of our, um, what some of our boundaries are, frankly. Um, you know, and and to say, hey, you know what? That's for you. That's not for me. That being on stage that much, that is amazing. If that's what your values are, yeah, you know, I have an amazing colleague here in LA. This amazing trumpet player named Tom Hooten. He's an animal. I love him. He's our principal trumpet in the LA Phil, um, and his one hundred percent. You know, of his many values and many interests. It's to be a world-class trumpet player at the top of an American orchestra field. And that is it. That's his stage. That's it. He's living his values. Um, And if that works for him in the structure that it works for him, by all means, go for it. All of my support is behind Tom and my colleagues in the film who have decided that that's what they care about. Um, So it's not to paint all of my colleagues with a bad brush by any means. It's also to say that, like, values are allowed to evolve and how we practice our values is allowed to change in the world. Um, so those those are the two pieces I think I would transmit to young people.
1: That's amazing. And I know Tom. Tom was my principal trumpet at the Atlanta Symphony when I was in the Atlanta Symphony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: yeah, it is a small world. Both of you have amazing hair. <laughs> <That's>,
1: yes. <yeah>, thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot, BJ. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Oh, man. Yeah, we have... Yeah. Tom and I. <laughs> That's great. Um,
0: well, this this is is it's so inspiring to get to speak with you and hear the imagine the the listeners um, and of the next generation who might be um, taking in your wisdom and experience in this sort of hierarchical, this vertical and horizontal wholeness of values, with making sure that we feel authentically full um, and making sure that what we're doing is there's, an, there's a, a space for it. There's a quote-unquote audience for it. Yeah. And um, that there's a creative space and that, of course, like the almost verbatim or the words of Project 440 with, <laughs> you know, music is really the tool as a pathway to, to another end yes. of creative space, of wholeness, to use your words, VJ. Um, and it's I basically just I really want to go practice a lot now because I don't have a lot of time these days and it just hearing you talk just makes me want want to go practice and like enrich myself with that because I've been basically to say I'm just so inspired by getting to reconnect with you oh
2: thank you Yumi yeah we both are
0: Um, it's
1: <laughs> it's nice to get our dose. We might have to make this uh pre- like a, a prescription uh, at least a a, a yearly at ye- least a yearly dose. I'm ready. I'm ready <laughs> for, <it. laughs> for for our hearts, minds and souls. Love it. Uh I know our uh, I know the audience will really appreciate your really wise, <laughs> fine and personal and heartfelt words all of them. And uh, as as much as I know you and I have we are so thankful and grateful for you to have joined us um, uh, on this endeavor. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and um, you mean I joke about this because we say th- this is the first. And possibly last season
2: <laughs> <laughs> of this podcast, but should should it continue? To be continued, and and I we might need our annual dose. Well, and and thank you, thank you both so much for creating this platform and for being who you are in the world. It's it's mutual admiration all around.
0: <laughs> thank you, VJ. <laughs> oh, wasn't that so great to talk to VJ again?
1: <laughs> awesome, what he's a amazing. Great he's amazing. So inspiring. Yeah. Um, and what
0: I particularly resonated with me was the w- way he described that juxtaposition like the physical close proximity of the the beautiful concert hall, this decadent space with Skid Row right there and then going there, like he bridged that gap the same way and this is not at all the same what you went and you literally knocked on Kappa's door like we we it's our job to connect with our own Neighbors, yeah. like the people we live right next to, it's on. It's our responsibility.
1: Having been there, actually, I've 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 I've, I've seen it myself as well. Um, uh, it it can be very dark. It can be very depressing, but I think going back to my uh, be positive blood type, <laughs> all I see is opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's literally all I see. Because we've been given a lot in this profession. We've been given this cathedral to play our concerts in in reference to um, the the LA Phil Hall, which I actually have never been inside. I've only seen the outside of it. But I'm sure it's beautiful. I've seen pictures. It's beautiful. So we've been given this cathedral and and, um, given these gifts and knowing that there are folks in need. What can we do as artists, with our gifts, to be able to help them.
0: Enter VJ. Yeah. Amazing. VJ's the gift. Also, talking about healthy institutions.
1: I yeah, that was so perfect. It was so perfect. That. It was so perfect. That was, that was, and I, I hope the way I asked the question was okay. And I total. tried to, like, massage it in, but, like, at the same time, yeah, when he, when he it's like, why, how could they let you go?
0: Yep, that's exactly it. How
1: is. could they let you go? How in the world could you let... Someone like that in your institution go? How is that possible?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, so no, I it was I thought he covered he literally covered like every the themes he talked about purpose purpose comes up late like all of it it was great. Yeah, he's great.
0: And I love the a bit about creating trust. I know I reiterated that back to him as well. Institutional trust and industry trust, Mm -hmm. and um, except for maybe a couple of times, in a. A musician's lifetime when one needs to discuss, you know, an individual situation or I'll just say contract. Yeah. Why can't there be more trust? Yeah. And so actually that was a lot of my map stuff. And I remember asking you backstage when we were talking about um, at, at school, at grad school at Penn, discussing about building trust mm-hmm. and communication. And I remember asking you and several of our colleagues, like, how do you trust? Do you trust on stage? Like, how do you tr- musically? And you answered, I trust that we're all gonna play when the conductor doesn't have
1: <laughs> Like
0: an, and I didn't even real. I was, I would, My mind was in like the backstage <laughs> the institutional trust, and, but on st- your mind went immediately to, on stage. I trust, all of us. We're gonna yeah. play. Yeah. Like everybody who's supposed to play is going to play and we're going to play together and we're going to sound awesome. Like there was just this magnitude and like this gravita to your response of like, it was so confident (laughs) and it was so beautiful and heartfelt. Like that's the kind of stuff we need to remind ourselves of musically and the essence of why we are there and how can we radiate that out everywhere. If we, if we go with our conversation of, you know, orchestra as a microcosm of society, right. And yeah. that trust that we have on stage, even if they're little things, oh, I don't know if the stand, the stand isn't exactly the right, all of these. But again, like one good thing, our experience is what we pay attention to. Right. Good. No, no. I was gonna
1: say I would say to that end because I'm thinking about how some folks might respond to that. Trust is earned. Mm-hmm. So, and I I think uh, there's the tr- there there's what we How we treat others as ourselves, how the institution treats us, Mm -hmm. and then how we collectively treat each other. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what builds the trust. If we are not ever put in the space to build that trust, Mm -hmm. then the trust will never transpire. And I feel like that might be one of the issues with our work. Because we're never, everything is so, sorry folks, both my brother and sister are in corporate, but everything's so corporate uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that this idea of building trust is not, it's all uh, transactional. Right. We do this, you do this, we do this, you do this. So there is no, no—the trust is not needed because it's transactional except for the, it's the trust that will get us to the next level of where we want to be.
0: Yes. And the
1: way we epitomize it on the stage as performers.
0: Yes, and what you made me think of is also another layer of trust, which is in some cases, rebuilding trust.
1: Yeah, yes.
0: And something I learned about was, it's called, um, we didn't know about post-traumatic stress disorder, but there's also post-traumatic growth. Mm. And that's been studied more in army veterans who are reentering society, so at the individual level. But PTG has been less studied as institutions. And that is something that fascinates me because trust is embedded in post-traumatic growth, like learning how to trust yourself again. Learning how to trust ourselves again, right. and I'm speaking specifically in our in 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 my experience from the bankruptcy, mm-hmm. and there's learning how to trust again. Institution, even if many individuals are no longer here anymore from the leadership roles who were responsible for that decision, it's it's there's a there's a residue there. Yes, um, that. Is still present. And so I think that's was just, you know, elephant in the room. That's one thing about rebuilding trust and how to do that. Right. And one must also be receptive to rebuilding trust. Right. If you see yourself as a victim versus as a perpetrator or an instigator versus a receipt, like whichever right. si- quote unquote side you want to take, because we're using silos here, <laughs> in the effort of rebuilding trust and eliminating those or smoothing out lines, um, you know, one needs to be willing to risk to to rebuild right. as well right yeah
1: like music yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> i mean it's like it's chamber music that's exactly what it is and then and yeah and then you can trust and then you can perform and then we all celebrate what a beautiful thing vj
0: vj <laughs> is so inspired. <laughs> <All of this. laughs> thank you thank BJ. you vj <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, everyone, as we wrap up our time together, we want to invite you to join us for this episode's Name That Tune segment. We will be playing a quick segment of a piece of music. If you think you know it, go and submit your answers via the question box on our Instagram stories or by sending us an email at info at tacitnomore.com. That's info at tacitnomore.com. We'll choose one winner to receive... Wait for it. Last week they waited for it. I'm going to make you wait, too. Uh, uh, <laughs> one winner will receive a jar of Joe's Jam, which is um, uh, a product of actual jam that supports my nonprofit organization, Project 440. So the, uh, here we go. This is, this is the moment you've all been waiting for in the name of that tune. Can anyone tell us where this excerpt comes from? that sound familiar to anyone that little piece of music there well if it did sound familiar remember you can go to our instagram stories our handle is tacit no more easy to find and uh, via the question box be sure to put your answer there or you can send us an email at info at tacitnomore.com thank y'all so much for listening
0: Tacit No More is produced by Joseph Conyers, Yumi Kendall, Andrew Meller, and Lindsay Sheridan. Any views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not reflect any entities with which they are associated. In our next episode... Well, I mean, I think it was a, a realization that women are missing. And that came to me very slowly and in, in a number of ways. Um, and I guess as I became aware of that, um, sort of consciously aware of it, I also became very acutely aware that the silence of marginalized people that allows their marginalization to continue. So that is something that I sort of actually decided, well, I'm just you know not going to shut up anymore.